Hey everyone, welcome to the MBIT Podcast, and in today's episode, we have Zane, who is a lifelong entrepreneur who first started his first venture when he was just a teenager. He co-founded a mobile advertising startup, Vungle, which was acquired by Blackstone in 2019 for $780 million. Shortly after he started Zane Ventures, his family office that boasts a diverse portfolio of real estate investments and prop tech startups. He is also currently a general partner at Bluefield Capital. Zane's success both as a founder and investor made him a leading authority in the realm of startups and venture capital. He has become a respected voice in the real estate area and can be heard sharing his insights on his PropTech VC podcast. So first off, thank you, Zane, for taking the time to join the podcast. How are you doing today? Thank you so much for having me on. Very excited to uh, chat with you about things PropTech, startups, real estate, whatever. Appreciate you taking the time today. So as you've mentioned, you've been an entrepreneur since 2003, founding companies like Cyber Planet, Media Roots, and Vungle, with Vungle being the first majorly successful one as it exited at $780 million. Why did you get involved in the media industry? I was a child of the internet revolution. And so you're there, you're Googling, you're looking at media, you know, and it was hard to get access to media back in those days. I was building websites and it always struck me that video is a very powerful communication tool. So a lot of the startups that I've done have had a video format to it. Like Vungle was actually a video advertising startup for mobile phones. Uh, prior to that, I tried to build like an e-learning video platform, like a Khan Academy or YouTube or Udemy. Um, so yeah, that's always been my, uh, my interest. You know, it's, I feel a lot of people start companies in areas that they're just familiar with. And me as a kid growing up, you know, amongst media and entertainment, I grew up in the era where we had Game Boys and we had Super Nintendos where it was highly pixelated. And to see that evolve where you had PlayStations and you had color graphics, it was just amazing for me. And I just loved that. So I naturally just, you know, decided to build companies that targeted areas that I'm interested in and that I understood. And going to Vungle, what is Vungle and what does it do? Vungle is a mobile advertising startup. We basically take video ads, or I can't say we anymore because I sold the company. <laughs> the company sold video ads on mobile phones. And what we did was we really figured out that if you can take a video ad and put it inside of a game, you can make it naturally fit into the experience of the game. So you're playing a game and ouch, you crash into a wall and you're dead. Well, you know, this pop-up comes up and it's like, you've run out of lives. Yep. <laughs> Spend $4.99, you know, to buy more lives. You don't want to do that, right? So instead, you can say, or watch a video ad. If you watch a video ad, you get one more free life. So it became a way for people to, you know, stay engaged within games. It became a way for game developers to make money from advertising. And who would have thought that little innovation where you revive a character or you, you know, you reward a character uh, or the user would turn into a multi-hundred million dollar, you know, business and exit. Yeah, that's become an extremely popular thing nowadays, where you, especially in many websites nowadays, instead of having to go through a paywall, you can watch a video ad and they get money from the advertising dollars from there. And as you mentioned, was that not a thing before you started Vungle? No. no that's we, awesome. We invented it and we invented it on mobile phones and then we pitched every media company in the world, literally, on the idea and some tried to build it themselves, so the idea behind the paywall you know, was something that we used to go in and we used to say to the media companies, look, let us power that for you. Right now you've got a paywall and people have to pay to read this content. Why don't you let us power the video ads? And we had many conversations like that. We never really 
our product never really took off in the uh, in the like you know news vertical. It really took off in gaming, and and that niche itself was such a big business. You know, with the lifetime of the company, it's done billions in revenue, especially since acquisition by Blackstone. But just having one niche and doing it well can build or something really big. Yeah, especially stick true to what you know best. And what are some of the things that you've done to help when you were at Vungle to help grow it into that large of a business? Oh my God, I burned out completely and put my life and soul into <laughs> the company, which is what you have to do when you're running a startup. Definitely. Uh, I did a few things that I think were probably more unique. Um, I learned very quickly and I had to be, I had other people's money, right? Like investors. And because I'd raised venture capital, I'd raised $25 million, you know, through the whole thing. I had a really big sense of fiduciary responsibility and duty. And that also meant being quite honest with the situation. Um, often when you're running a company that's got rocket ship growth, everyone gets credit, but very few people are actually making an impact. What I'm trying to say is I had to fire a lot of people. I had to turn over my executive team multiple times. We grew so quickly. We went from zero revenue to 850,000 to 15 million to 56 million to you know hundreds of millions, right? Through that growth, the team needs to change because the team that got you from zero to 850,000 isn't necessarily, and it can be, but often you might need a different DNA to take you to the next level. And you know, you're trying to hire for your problems now, but my God, by the time you filled that role, your company's doubled in size. And that's how fast the company was growing. I mean, imagine that year, 850K, one year later, 15 million. Can you imagine every month we were pretty much doubling, right? So, you know, you think you need X and you need Y. And ultimately that meant the team I'd built, there were times when I had to be making tough decisions and replacing people. It was very hard to do, but I had to do that. And a lot of investors, uh, you know, pointed out like that, that's a skill set that successful founders have. They're, they just, they get on with it. A lot of people spend far too long contemplating on these decisions. And before you know it, you've run out of money and you, you can't do that. And so for me, it was a case of, look, as much as, we, you know, and you have to treat people fairly on the way out, obviously. Yeah, yeah as much as I want to, um, you know, employ this person, that's holding back the entire company right now. And we need someone who's got more experience. And if this person can't, you know, scale into the new role or, or you know, move aside to bring someone up in above them, you have to do that. And so that's what I'd say I did. I was pretty good at, um, you know, uh, I hate to say I was good at removing people. I mean, really, for the truth is, you know, as a founder, it's about the team. I mean, you're, you're raising money, making sure you don't run out of money. You're employing people, you're creating the culture. You're setting the vision. Those are pretty much the three things, you know, the founder does. Um, and yeah, that, that was uh, one hell of a learning curve that I got through it. I completely agree with you, especially with your point on pivoting in business. It's super key. Yeah, Every founder has to be able to do it if they want to become successful. And we have a lot of startup founders listening to this podcast. What's your advice to know when they should get rid of people or change out their team or even if they should ever do it? If you're already questioning it, the writing's on the wall, really. And it's more of an issue for founders who tend to be very nice and are people pleasers. They're the ones who struggle to take action. And, you know, I say this from the perspective now of a venture capitalist. I've invested in, at this point, well over 40 startups. And, you know, many are not announced, so they're not necessarily on the website. But uh, a lot of founders just take far too long, and uh, they always hope it's going to work out. And ultimately, you should, learn quite, you should know quite quickly. I don't, I don't think this advice applies to people that 
I'm naturally good at you know setting expectations, being clear, because I do believe you need to give people a chance. You need to be direct with feedback. You've got to go through that process. So obviously I'm assuming like all founders are doing that, right? Or the CEO is doing that. But once you've done that and you've set expectations, they're not being met, you have got to, it shouldn't be a surprise to the person when you remove them. So I think that's something that founders really need to uh, get comfortable with regarding, you know, cutting in. As of this podcast right now, when we're recording, you know, it's, it's uh, mid 2022, the markets are, you know, getting crushed. Technology is, uh, you know, many technology stocks are down 70, 80%. Wow, that's scary. Um, and it's hard to raise venture capital for numerous startups now. Companies have to go through this. They have to cut the burn. And if you don't do it, you're going to run out of money and you, you, everyone's going to be out of a job. So you, you need to retrench and, and times have times are changing, it seems, regarding the you know abundance of venture capital that's been floating about. And as you mentioned, is this um, so-called downfall in being able to raise money um, in the VC space, for is it going to be for a short period of time or do you see it going for a longer period of time or a permanent change on the industry? I mean, who knows is the real answer. I have no idea. I think what's happening is that later stage valuations have been getting crushed. It does. It will trickle down to the earlier stage, and I'm already seeing signs of that. But when you're investing at the earlier stages, you are taking like a 10-year view. Yep. So you have to look beyond the current climate. And startups that have capital now have an advantage because it's harder to raise capital, and um, capital can be a source of advantage. I do think as you go later and later, the bar is changing. Companies need a lot more traction to raise the next round. And to save face, a lot of founders are basically reopening the last round and calling it an extension because the writings on the wall is quite clear that you know it's difficult to raise at those valuation multiples that you're at. A lot of founders are not coming to terms with the reality though. A lot of founders are uh, still stuck on the idea that well, my competitors have raised a monstrous round and we're better than them, we should be able to do it too. Or they're still stuck on the multiples that were relevant a year ago. Things have changed. And um, this is also a time to be prudent and raise capital if you can. And, you know, you get a lot of this, like, you know, founders coming in saying, oh, yeah, we're raising for 12, you know, it's 12 months of runway. And I vomit at that. No way. 12 months of runway. Are you kidding? Raise 24 months. You know, you need to be prudent now. And how that, if you can't raise for, you know, enough money for 24 months of runway, cut your burn. You do not want to be in a situation where you're promising investors I'm going to raise a much larger round at a higher markup. There is a real risk of flat rounds, down rounds, or even no rounds, which ultimately means death of a company. So wake up. You know, the reality is here and you need to uh, roll up your sleeves and do what you got to do as a CEO. Yeah, I agree. Raising capital now is extremely important, especially in these current market conditions. Um, some of the things we're seeing uh, can be compared back to the dot-com bubble a couple decades ago, uh, especially one of the things that PayPal has done is right before that crash, they knew they were going to start to run out of capital and they could have either waited during later in the year or a year or two later to try to raise capital then, but they decided to go ahead while they still, they didn't need the capital right then and there, but they decided to raise a few million dollars um, and use that capital to get through that big downfall. And that's ultimately, in this case, what seems to have led them to be able to still stay alive during that dot-com bubble where many companies weren't able to do it. Exactly. And you always want to optimize, it's human nature, you always want to optimize for price, but 
those extra dollars that you bring in, that war chest of capital de-risks your company. And your job as a founder is money and to de-risk the company. And some of the best founders I know are the ones who will take the money that's there in hand and won't overly try to optimize. And also from experienced founders too, unless they're sitting on a boatload of cash themselves and they don't need venture funding, right? Um, some of the best founders are the ones who have seen this, you know, I don't want to say this cycle, but they have experienced cycles because each cycle is, you know, different. And it, it also you have multiple cycles happening at the same time across different industries. But founders in my portfolio, I've been bummed, right? They're like some, some of the fastest, fastest growing companies in my, you know, portfolio decided somehow, you know, to raise extra growth capital and they took lower terms than I was expecting. But as they made, they were like, look, we're hearing whispers of a market turndown. We don't want to spend three months, six months, nine months raising capital, especially when we're getting close to running out. So now that there's six months of cash in the bank, you know, there's no point optimizing. We found the right partner. And you're like, how can you, how can you argue with that? Right? Like, okay, yeah. sure. If anything, let me invest more. This valuation is cheap. You know, I'm coming in. So that is what I'm seeing. Whereas a lot of the inexperienced founders um, who haven't experienced this and have spent too long reading Twitter and TechCrunch and, you know, are driven by ego possibly are in danger right now. This happened during COVID, by the way, too. During COVID, a lot of companies ran out of money and it was, it was a disaster, right? Ultimately, some companies came up far stronger through COVID. Well, here we are. There's another cycle right now. And it seems to be like a big, you know, interest rates are rising. Tech multiples are, are just collapsing. Stock markets are, are proverbially crashing. Hard to say crashing when you consider where we came from in the last few years. Yeah. Right? We're still up a lot, but we're down like, you know, NASDAQ's down 20% as of this moment when we're talking. And we've had a series of down days. Um, and that does... Um, you know, that does create ripple effects everywhere, especially in the venture capital ecosystem. I've, I, you always hear these stories that the downturn, downturn is coming and bad times are ahead, but it really feels to me like, you know, I talk to VCs constantly, I co-invest with them. Wow, something's changed in the environment. Like people are now, people are now freaking out. And by the way, amazing time to have money. This is the best time to be scooping up deals. I, I firmly believe it's the best time ever to invest in startups, but the crowd, you know, of average IQ, like that meme out there, right, are, are panicking. And, uh, you know, <laughs> take yeah. a mind. Yeah. yeah, so I think the average Series A round in the past year from 2020 to 2021 rose by $9 million. And we're starting to see a lot of these rounds being raised at much higher valuations in the past couple of years. But as we're headed into a possible recession, what are some of the things uh, that founders should keep in mind when building out their startup? You know, that's a tough one. Um, if you're a good company, you, you do need to spend to grow. I appreciate that. I think in moments like these, I felt that money was so abundantly available that venture capital was a commodity. And one mistake I've seen founders do through this last cycle is they weren't very communicative. They didn't really send their investor updates as frequently as they should have. They should have been far more transparent. Now people are knocking on the door. Hey, can I catch up? Hey, how's it going? I haven't heard from you in nine months. Well, you know, we're, we're trying to raise another round. It's like, well, you know, that doesn't ring well here, right? So I think what founders can do going through this period is communicate a lot with investors, send monthly investor updates. Don't hide any of your metrics. Your investors can't help you if you're hiding things. Report the metrics that matter. Report the cash balance and runway. Be prepared to create multiple financial plans. 
the base case and then the worst case plan where things don't work out and identify which, which roles you're gonna cut, where you're gonna make those cuts. Um, take advantage of this situation to be more frugal and more lean. Start paying attention to gross margins. Start paying attention to the unit economics and the business model itself. And um, also when it comes to user acquisition costs, like your CAC and your marketing, and I know this because I ran a marketing tech company, right? Um, make sure that your uh, period or your time to recoup, right? Your return on ad spend is in line with what your industry benchmarks suggest and that you're not just pouring money into growth and top line metrics, revenue profitability uh, or the ability to show you can get to profitability are gonna really matter right now for the next few years, I think. And I think founders should assume this is a, a few years of impact, not a quick you know, V-shaped recovery, which is what we felt. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And going back to your marketing tech startup, I was just chatting with Andrew Gazdecki the other day. He's the uh, CEO of MicroAcquire and he created it to make it a more frictionless process for others to sell their small startups. What was your process selling your startups and trying to get buyers? In this case, it was a VC. But what was that process like for you? That was a much larger process, right? Because you're, you're, you're dealing with valuations that could have been anywhere from 500 to a billion, right? And we ended up somewhere in the middle of that. Um, at that level, you, you have fiduciary duty and resources to optimize valuation and terms. So we ended up hiring an investment bank. We hired two. One of those was Goldman Sachs that did a fantastic job. Uh, we even built an internal corp dev team. Uh, on one hand, we were looking to make acquisitions, but on the other hand, you know, we were also, the board wanted us to explore exit opportunities. And so we had corp dev people and we created a strategy where we, and this is generally the playbook when you're at a certain scale and you have resources, you identify potential acquirers, you create a business development function, which is secretly corp dev. The business development function is around finding out what their strategy is, their vision is, building a product or partnership that shows extreme synergy. You know, I, I can't give confidential information away, but you know, we were in touch with numerous yeah. large companies and we figured out, okay, this is Google's roadmap, Facebook's roadmap. I mean, yeah, we were in touch with those, right? But there were others I can't talk about, right? Yeah, so yeah. it's just like Google or Facebook, right? You know their roadmap and you figure out, okay, Let's get friendly with the most senior people at the company. Let's propose some type of integration or partnership. Now that we have that, we can also attack the you know, potential uh, angle of M&A. And ultimately, if you line things up well, you now have a series of partnerships going with larger companies. And then you can call them and say, hey, things are accelerating quite quickly. A competitor of yours uh, is knocking at the door quite aggressively. And given that we think there's such a good fit here, you know, want to talk CEO to CEO, or you know, C level or senior VP level, and discuss what a you know an integration or acquisition could look like. Goldman Sachs did a really good job of running that process, and you know I think ultimately the company decided to go with Blackstone because there was a lot of autonomy and they wanted to roll up the industry and and you know allow Vungle to become an acquirer of other companies, which Vungle has since done. So yeah, I think that was our process. I think that playbook can sort of work. Um, even on the M&A side and hiring investment bankers, uh, there's various types of investment bankers, right? There's like boutique, there's like mid-market, and then there's, you know, larger folks like, you know, Goldman's who we went with ultimately. Um, another thing that we did try, but the markets weren't really favorable to, they would have been favorable if we hadn't sold and we'd stayed in the game a few more years, was a dual track process. Uh, in fact, 
you could call it a three-track process, but really it's a dual-track process. One is capital raising, one is M&A. So you go out and you explore options, you get term sheets for your next round of funding or an IPO, right? So you go down the IPO path, but you also explore an M&A options at the same time. That way you're not for sale. There's no stigma on the street that, you know, you're going around the block and things are working or things aren't working, but you are at least able to, um, at least able to have a legitimate conversation and say, look, we're planning to go public, but we're also exploring the M&A, M&A path. Well, we are raising another round. We've had a term sheet. We wanted to have a final conversation, you know, and on both ends, it can work really well if you do it. It's a big time sink as a founder, though, a CEO. I mean, it can take up like nearly all of your time. You literally need a good COO in place, which we had to run the business so you can focus on these very secret meetings, secret as well, by the way, because you don't want word getting out on the street, nor do you want word getting out in your employee base, because if your employees find out, they think you're for sale, they lose their motivation, people start gossiping, if the acquisition doesn't work out, people think something's wrong. I mean, it's a whole bag of worms, you know? Right, yeah. And transitioning here into prop tech, you mentioned before the podcast that you were always interested in VC since you were 16, but decided to go the founder route. What made you go back into prop tech and what is prop tech? Prop tech is real estate technology, finding technologies that can really disrupt the real estate sector. It could be automating workflows, making you know a certain role more efficient, like helping brokers or property managers be more efficient, helping tenants you know do a better job at finding the right place. Uh, and also bringing in technology that can improve your operations. And then on the disruptive side, you know, the fun side is like Web3 blockchain, right? Where you're completely re-engineering everything in real estate. Um, so that's what PropTech is. I went into PropTech because I ultimately, I think I want to start a company in real estate technology. And I wanted to learn more about the area. And also, what does a founder do after they sell their company? Well, retirement, I would say, is a full-time job, 40 hours a week when you've been working, you know every single moment of the day. Um, so for me, that's what it was. It was like VC, you know, hasn't been anywhere near as intense as being a founder, but it's been a really good platform to see the industry explore what's going on and learn that way and make investments to make money to. For sure. And successful industries have problems and solutions or make existing areas or existing industries frictionless. What is one of the problems or one of the key problems that PropTech solves? Well, let's talk about a part of PropTech or let's, let's not, PropTech is such a broad term. Let's, let's be really specific. Let's, let's talk about something fun. Let's talk about, I got one, tokenization of real estate. For sure. Yep. So currently real estate is quite illiquid takes months and months to close a deal and then you have to go through a process to sell it and there's so many intermediaries involved from brokers to title companies to you know a whole whole slew of people basically now um you also need a lot of capital to enter the real estate market what tokenization does is and this is security as defined by the sec security tokens right you can take the underlying interest in a company that owns the real estate like an llc you fractionalize that and you call them tokens. Those tokens are now tradable on the blockchain. What you've done is radical because in a moment you could buy shares, which are tokens. It's like buying shares of a company. Yep. You can start buying up tokens. The tokens could be priced as low as like $50. So you're buying $50 at a time, maybe hundreds of hundreds of these tokens. And 
hold on a second, that didn't take months. That didn't need a PSA. That didn't need a, you know, a listing process, an agent to pay commission to and a title company to, to do all that. No, you, you simply now own membership interest in the underlying real estate. And theoretically, although the infrastructure doesn't exist, you could sell that in a heartbeat. Theoretically, because it's on the blockchain, and if you follow the regulations, I mean, you can sell it on the blockchain, but if you follow the regulations, right, eventually you'll be able to sell that like you can sell a stock. I mean, the fact that you can, you can do that for, for like $50 and you can do it instantly, that's a game changer for real estate. And that will disrupt real estate at its very core. And that trend is coming. It'll take time. It'll be years and years before that's mainstream, maybe five, 10 years. But when it comes, we will laugh at the way real estate is bought and transacted on today. We will literally laugh. We won't laugh. The next generation will laugh at us. Like how, how are all these roles existing? And like, uh, why were they, why was all this paper involved? <laughs> and all this rubbish nonsense, you know? And for people in the audience who might be wondering, what's the difference between uh, tokenizing that real estate and being able to buy it at as low as $50 on the blockchain versus investing in something like a real estate ETF? When you invest in a REIT, which is what you're really referring to when you say real estate ETF. Yep. You're doing it on the stock exchange and you are buying into a bundle, an ETF of properties. You don't have the flexibility to buy that specific asset. That REIT might have a hundred different homes, usually thousands of homes, right? Or, or buildings or whatever. Here, at least, you don't have, you can buy the individual home and you can buy a share of that individual home. The REIT usually owns the entire home outright. You can build your own mini REIT. You know, you can build, you can buy tokens and there you are. You've now got your own REIT. You don't have to also, REITs generally have different regulatory constraints and they also have, um, you know, they tend to focus on the income component. You as an investor have the freedom to decide how you want to build, uh, how you want to um, invest in different tokens. So I, I would say that's probably one of the main uh, benefits. I mean, we could do a whole podcast on the difference between REITs and, and um tokenization of real estate on the blockchain. But to me, that would be the main thing to focus on what I just said. Got it. And recently with mortgage rates being at their highest since 2009, as you mentioned a little bit earlier, how could that affect the not only the real estate industry, but also the prop tech industry and you working at your uh, firm? I'm seeing valuations decrease on the real estate side. Um, there aren't as many crazy offers, both on residential and on commercial. Uh, I would say I'm seeing about a 15% reduction in value uh, on commercial real estate. And I'm talking in generalities here. You know, you have to be, you know, you'd have to zoom into different asset types or whatever. So I'm, I'm referring probably mostly to multifamily in good markets. So we're seeing things trade lower. We're seeing things longer. Things are taking longer to close. Um, the numbers just don't pencil out with mortgage rates increasing. You know, the numbers do not pencil out when you buy something anymore. Uh, and so you have to bid less to make your return profile work. So that's something I'm, I'm seeing change. Sellers who are reluctant to sell and are holding out for the best price are now desperate to sell. Um, and ouch, if you're you know, in the process of transacting, it's tough. Now, if you're buying, oh, it's amazing. And look, there's so much dry powder sitting out there that um, there's a flaw here to how low valuations will drop. This is a blip in time, but whilst there's a blip, the blip is also pointing to a downward trend, which is great for opportunistic people. So a good time to buy. So that's what I'm seeing across the real estate sector. It's a good time to buy, I think. Pretty bad time to sell, but hey, I can't. 
Over the last two decades, the number of prop tech company mergers and acquisitions was relatively low. It wasn't until 2010 that we started seeing an average of three to firm, uh, three to four firms being acquired each year. There was a significant peak in mergers and acquisitions between 2013 and 2014, with 17 firms being acquired. Still, the most significant growth of prop tech mergers and acquisitions happened in the past five years, with an average of 48 prop tech firms being acquired every year. The peak was in around 2018 with 54. What are some of the reasons why prop tech has been getting increasingly popular in the past decade or so? Don't forget to mention too that there were a ton of SPACs as well. That's a good point. <laughs> SPACs, you know, was a great way for, for companies to gain their exits. Um, I want to give you a very different answer than the one you're expecting. Okay. And this doesn't yep. just talk to the last decade, it talks to our future. What you're seeing is a generational change in who is running real estate. A lot of the people um, are passing away or they're retiring and they're passing on the family estate downwards of funds that, you know, bringing in new first blood. As new blood comes in, as, you know, the, the children come in and inherit all this real estate, they're going to do things differently. They are not okay with things running on spreadsheets. We are the generation that grew up, you know, on our, on our, gaming consoles, and even more recently on our cell phones, right? So when you consider that the old guard is transitioning into retirement or whatever you want to say they're transitioning into, right? As the new, new blood comes in, the new blood wants technology. They want to come in and they want to turbocharge things. They want to implement tech. They, they look at things and they're like, why are things run this way? Well, because, you know, dad or the old boss used to do it this way. That doesn't suffice anymore. So really, I think that is something no one can deny. The new blood is coming in. The new generation is coming in and is, is running, you know, making decisions. That's going to result in a big wave of prop tech adoption and is going to create the demand. It's been pretty hard to break into uh, the real estate sector generally for prop tech startups. Um, and now there's a tidal wave of change coming, which is exciting. And to wrap it up here, what are some of your takeaways on the audience? So let's first start with takeaways on building startups in this type of environment with a possible recession. Yeah, so you'll have to fill in the gaps too. Audience can play along here and see how well they've been listening. <laughs> I would say watch the burn, specifically plan to build your company and financial plan for at least 24 months of runway, especially when you're raising money. Extend your burn get a lot more realistic about the valuation, even if you've got really good, um, even if you've got really good revenue, just be a little bit more conservative. Yeah. More likely take the offer in hand rather than trying to, you know, over-optimize on valuation. Don't just take the offer in hand, find the right partner, but don't try to optimize too much on valuation. Like think long-term, uh, look at the team around you and be prepared to cut people if you need to identify who in advance. Let them know that if you have issues with their performance, at least give them a chance to correct it. If they're on the team right now, then they should be helping you get closer towards your goal, not closer towards running out of money, which is what will happen if you're not careful. So I think those were the, the key lessons. Did, did, did you, could you think of anything else that didn't cover that? Yeah, that's pretty much most of everything. I think one of the main things also is to really keep an eye on uh, your finances for your startup because a, a lot of times we see startups that are just 
blowing right by their finances. For example, with Fast, they're raising super high valuations, moving super quick. But this is the time to really get as much data as you can and really understand it like the back of your hand so you know exactly how long you have until you run out of money or how you can increase your efficiency using that capital. I'm laughing because I remember I have a memory, a flashback in time where, uh, you know, we're running our startup, we're, we're knee deep in things and I meet another founder and uh, like, how are things going? And, you know, questions you, once you know a founder well enough, you can ask intimate questions such as, yep. Yep. what's your burn rate? And I was like, I don't know what my burn rate is. <laughs> you mean you don't know what your burn rate is? And this was a more experienced founder. I was like, I don't know. And I looked at my co-founder and we were like, probably 100k a month. He was like, what? He literally spat out his water, 100k a month. I'm like, yeah, is that a lot? He's like, dude, we're burning like 20k a month and we're sweating. I'm like, oh, I, I guess, yeah. He's like, how much cash have in the bank? I'm like, I'm not sure. Uh, I think we're going to be out of money in a few months. You know, <laughs> so just not aware of it. Not just that, like we weren't collecting cash. We got very lucky. In fact, we, we did get to a situation where we thought we were going to bankrupt. It was our fault. We should have paid a lot more attention to the finances. We were, we were first-time entrepreneurs. We were in our early 20s, right? That's what we were doing. We didn't have that discipline. We didn't have adult supervision around the table. Um, we got very lucky. Um, and, you know, we, we got a venture loan, a venture debt loan for half a million that sort of gave us a little bit more cushion than we raised a six and a half million dollars, six million dollars plus Series A, right? Back in those days, yeah. that were big, big numbers, by the way, like, you know. 2010 to 20, you know, yeah, yeah. at that period. So yeah, uh, I didn't know that. And um, my God, like, you've got to be looking at the numbers and not just the numbers. Cash flow is very important. Not just like revenue, collect that cash. You know, we had to, people will always delay paying you, especially in environments like this. Collect that cash because you could be so close to running out of money if you're not careful. Yeah, so I completely I agree. That's a really interesting story. Now let's wrap it up here for any of your takeaways on the prop tech industry. Oh, I, I think um, I think I want to say something new, which is through all of this doom and gloom conversation we've had, I think prop tech will be the most resilient of all technology sectors because the underlying base of customers are in real estate. That basically means you've got an inflation hedge here. You've got a recession-proof customer base. And PropTech valuations haven't been crazy, by the way. PropTech valuations have been really reasonable. Most companies have a very clear path to making revenue or have been making revenue. And I haven't seen that craziness. The only part, the only place I've seen craziness is the overlap between FinTech and PropTech and Web3 and PropTech. That's where the valuations have been outrageous, right? But overall, I think PropTech's going to do really well. And I think it only merges one of the best performing asset classes within you know, the, the venture capital technology ecosystem. So that would probably be my, like, positive you know takeaway from all this that's a great takeaway and uh all right everyone thanks for tuning in to the mbit podcast i appreciate everyone who took the time to tune in and uh if you enjoyed the episode make sure to leave a five-star review down below and i want to give a special thanks to our guest zane for taking the time to hop on the podcast it was a pleasure thank you for having me appreciate it disclaimer the podcast you just heard is not a recommendation to buy or sell any stocks holdings or securities The podcast is also not meant to serve as the basis of any investment decision.